Okay, well, we're picking up where we left off. We'll, we'll probably start around 619, um, uh, in case there's anybody who wanted to, uh, to make any more comments or observations or wrestle with that anymore, and then we will uh, we'll charge into chapter 7. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that is ours, a steadfast anchor of the soul, Jesus Christ, who has gone into the Holy of Holies for us and has made a way for us to have access to you and to be in fellowship with you again despite our sin. We give thanks for these things and pray that as we open up your word this evening or this uh, afternoon, as we, uh, we look at, uh, at the, the work of the author of Hebrews, that you would fill us with confidence in our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so where have we been? Uh, the, the author of Hebrews' big picture is, uh, is reaching out to a community that appears to be tempted to go back to Judaism or to mix Judaism with their Christianity in order to make less of a distinction between them and the Jewish community. And, uh, and he is holding up that law of Moses with everything that it entails, including Moses himself and the high priesthood and the temple and the sacrifices, that whole system, uh, what we sometimes refer to as the law of Moses or the Mosaic law. The author of Hebrews is showing how all of it pointed to Christ, and he's doing that for the purpose of instructing his, his readers not to go back to that because it all pointed to Christ and Christ has come. So it's shadow and substance that we're, we're reading about here in the letter to the Hebrews. Christ stands, if you imagine a timeline uh, that you might just draw on a you know, dry erase board timeline, Christ stands in the middle of that timeline and, uh, and casts a shadow back through the Old Testament. And it was interpreting that shadow, if you will, that was like a schoolmaster to the Jewish people in the Old Testament that informed them, trained them, instructed them about who God is, what he's doing, what it would look like when he did it. But now that Christ has come, we've come to the man himself. We've come to the one who casts that shadow. And we, we embrace him and cling to him. We don't go back to the shadows. Uh, it would be a silly thing, wouldn't it, if, uh, if after being separated from one you love for months and months or even years, for, uh, for you to, to rejoice over the shadow of that person when the person himself or herself stands in front of you. Uh, the author of Hebrews is going to suggest that to go back to these things is not just to go back to something lesser, but it's to reject the substance itself. It's to reject Jesus Christ. Now, all of that was pointing to him. He has come. If you will not have him, you will have nothing. You can't even have the shadow. All right? So... What he's trying to do, though, instead of, of, of making merely a systematic theological argument, saying you're wrong, here's the details, he's, he's holding Christ up as beautiful, more beautiful than even the things that were beautiful in the Old Testament. We can look to those shadows in the Old Testament. They are beautiful because the one who casts that shadow is beautiful. Of course, he must be more beautiful than the shadow he casts, right? And that's what we have here. And so that's what he's doing in the book. We've come out of the, the, uh, the big warning passage, passage of chapter 6. And, uh, and he began prior to that warning passage by transitioning to the argument that, the, that Christ is greater than Moses. Uh, and he's, he moved into the warning passage 
And now he's coming out of that. He's moving from Moses as the, the foreshadowing of Christ, the type of Christ, into the priesthood, which was a type of Christ. Now, both the Mosaic priesthood and the priesthood of Melchizedek, they're both types of Christ. Even though Christ is not a priest after the order of Aaron, he is after the order of Melchizedek, nonetheless, both of them foreshadow Christ. And so that's what we're going to begin to see the author of Hebrews arguing. He's going to argue that Christ is a greater, the greatest high priest, uh, that there is no other. And so if you go back to another high priest, you, you're leaving Christ for something lesser. So let's start with 19 and 20 in chapter 6. Uh, he's made this argument, this warning, and he's talked about Christ and, and what promise God has made and how God has secured that promise and how Christ is the fulfillment of that. Verse 19, we have this, that is the hope, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I want to remind you that this is not the first mention of Melchizedek. He interrupted himself. Remember, for the warning, if you go back to chapter 5, verse 10, you'll see almost the identical language being designated by God, a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He interrupted himself to issue the warning, and now he's coming back to that, that argument that he began. Uh, I think it's interesting, 19, chapter 6, verse 19, uh, how that dovetails with the, the sermon text this morning. I mentioned it last week, the kind of the sailing uh, image that's, that's brought to mind by the use of the word anchor, the anchor of the soul. Uh, it's uh, Noah and his family aren't left on top of a high mountain to watch everything in comfort, uh, but are placed inside the ark, this refuge which goes through the storm. Uh, we see that implied here. God and what he is doing in the world does not hold us out from the storm that is the world right now. Uh, instead, he holds us in the midst of that storm. What does a boat need in the midst of a, so a storm? It needs an anchor. Otherwise, it risks being blown onto the rocks and dashed to pieces, an image used elsewhere in Scripture to describe the Christian life, right? Uh, in fact, in another warning passage. And so uh, he uses this language of the steadfast anchor. It's interesting, too, uh, and I don't, I'd have to think about this some more. I don't know if it's intended. It appears to be to me. But an anchor uh, has to go into good ground. Having an anchor is not enough. You learn this as a sailor. The bottom is different. There's this kind of bottom, that kind of bottom. Some of the bottom has plants. Some has coral. Some is sand. Not all bottom is equally good for holding an anchor. And if you drop your anchor into a bottom that's not good holding, your boat will drift. It will drag that anchor. You need a bottom that is an appropriate foundation, an, an appropriate uh, uh, matter for that anchor to dig into and hold. And listen, if you've got the right anchor dug into the right ground the right way, nothing's moving that boat. I've seen boats that can't get the anchor pulled up. It is so well grounded in the bottom. Notice where the anchor seems to be grounded. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. 
Again, I want to be careful the grammar is not a slam dunk here, but I wonder if our anchor is not rooted in the Holy of Holies, in Jesus Christ himself, right? Of course, in Jesus Christ himself, but I'm wondering if the author here is, is sort of pitching that anchor through the veil into the Holy of Holies. This is where we are grounded, and it is excellent ground. The anchor is not only a good anchor, but the anchor is grounded in ground that will not fail. And so uh, an encouragement there in the imagery that the author is using. He also not only returns to the priesthood motif by reference to Melchizedek, but by reference to the work of Christ, right? A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So he's talking about the Holy of Holies in the Old Testament temple, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus Christ, this is the import, right? This is why we care about this. Uh, There's a lot of times that the Old Testament imagery is applied to us, and we ought to ask, why do I care? Well, you're children of Abraham. Why do I care? Why do I care? I'm a child of Abraham who lived 4,000 years ago on a different continent. He's a different ethnicity from me personally anyways. Why why do I care? I'm a, a child of Abraham. And in the same sense, we ought to be asking the question, why do we care? that Jesus has gone as a forerunner into the Holy of Holies for us. In order to understand why we should care, we have to understand what the Holy of Holies represents. Uh, For those who have been around quite some time here, we we preached through the book of Exodus some years ago and talked at length about the the temple and the the holy place and the Holy of Holies and the, the furniture in the holy place and what was in the Holy of Holies and how all of that worked. But the Holy of Holies represented the very presence of God in the midst of his people. Why, if God loves his people, if God comes to his people, if God manifests himself to his people, why is he buried two chambers deep in a place that nobody's allowed to go but one person once a year and only under certain circumstances? Sin is the answer. Sin is what keeps us from God. And you see that in the entire temple cult. Uh, the, the cultists, that it, everything that's required in the right worship of God in the Mosaic context, all of it screams that God is, is separated from us by our sin. And it's dealing with that sin is what's happening uh, ceremonially in the Old Testament law with respect to the temple. You're dealing with the sin, and as you deal with the sin, you get closer and closer, but it's only the high priest who is a representative. That representative quality, that's a big deal. We talked about that with David and Goliath, right? David doesn't just go down and fight Goliath. He goes down on behalf of all of the army of Israel. And the winner of that singular combat, that that single one-on-one combat, the winner takes all. That was the rule. We see this representative idea popping up, and especially in the Law of Moses, with the priesthood. Only the high priest is able to go in. When the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies and he puts the blood of the offering, the blood of atonement, on the mercy seat, it represents a union between God and his people, a fellowship which we had in the garden, was lost because of sin, and that God has been restoring ever since and finally restores in Jesus Christ. So that it's no longer an appropriate symbol. Right? God didn't open the curtain on the day that Jesus was crucified. That would have been one symbol. 
and, and quite a surprising symbol. It would have been an incredible mercy to us if God had taken the curtain and slid it aside for us. But God doesn't do that. He communicates not only that we have some kind of access, we have some occasional access. The curtain can be closed, it can be opened, closed, opened. He tears the, the thing from top to bottom. It's useless. It's of no purpose anymore. What has kept us from God historically no longer keeps us from God. Not only do we have access personally, really, individually, existentially, access to God, but Jesus Christ is always in the presence of God and intercedes for us. That's what we have in Jesus Christ because he is our great high priest. You can imagine the author of Hebrews teaching this to his audience and his audience immediately saying, but he's not a Levite. He's not qualified. This thing breaks down somehow. And so the author of Hebrews is going to begin unpacking that for us. Let me pause before we go into seven. Any questions? Comments? Observations? The author of Hebrews continues in chapter seven. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. I'm going to keep reading a bit, and then we're going to go to Genesis and read the, the narrative that he's, he's unpacking for us here. Verse 4, see how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. So we're gonna unpack his argument in a second. Let's go back and let's look at Genesis, if you'll turn Back to, uh, to Genesis, and uh, I can never remember if it's 14, Genesis 14, it's actually fairly brief, uh, the, the context is rather simple, uh, there's a certain point where Abraham and Lot, his nephew, who are living together, they're just too big, their families, their livestock and everything, Abraham says to Lot, look, they go up to a high place. He says, whatever you want, you take that, I'll take the rest. Lot goes down into the valley uh, near the Dead Sea to Sodom and Gomorrah uh, and, and takes the, the lands of the, the valley, the Jordan River Valley, as his own. Uh, they're now relatively separated. There's no enmity between them, but they're no longer together. It's in that place of Sodom and Gomorrah that when God goes to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot is living. 
Prior to that happening, though, uh, there is a, uh, there's an incident where uh, five kings come up against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, and they basically sack the cities, and they take everything and everyone. And uh, there's nothing that the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah can do about it. They've just been defeated. Abraham, and we get, begin to get a sense of just how wealthy a man Abraham is, Abraham gathers up his people and chases down the five kings, destroys the five kings and their armies, and retrieves everything that belongs to Sodom and Gomorrah, the people and the possessions, and returns with them to Sodom and Gomorrah. It's as he's returning, as he, he arrives back, that we begin to read in chapter 14, verse 17. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlamar and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham, or Abram, by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abraham, or Abram, give me the persons, but take the goods for yourself. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I've lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men who went with me. Let Aner, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. And so a couple of details that the author of Hebrews has pulled out here. Did you notice there's no information given about where Melchizedek comes from? I mean, he's from Salem, but there's no, no mention of his birth, no mention of his death. Uh, there's no mention of him even departing, is there? It says in verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Uh, the end of verse 20, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then he's just gone. He's not mentioned again in the narrative. And in fact, nowhere in Genesis is he mentioned again. He's just gone. The author of Hebrews picks up on that, right? Says he has no father, no mother. He's not born. He doesn't die. So he's, he's picking up on that. Notice, too, that he blesses Abraham. The author of Hebrews says that the, the lesser is always blessed by the superior. He says, blessed be Abraham by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And so he blesses Abraham. And then what does Abraham do? He gives him a tenth of everything. So Abraham tithes to Melchizedek. And that works in reverse, right? Uh, the lesser tithes to the greater. You don't tithe to the lesser. So by Melchizedek's blessing and Abraham's tithing, Abraham and Melchizedek establish that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And yet Abraham is the one to whom God has made the promises. The author of Hebrews picks up on all of this, right? Uh, and so if we return to Hebrews chapter 7, take a look at that again. 
And to be clear, for those whose Old Testament history might be a little spotty, we, we think about the Old Testament as being a narrative about the Jewish people. Uh, and it is, but not initially. Uh, we, we kind of work our way in the narrative to the point at which it is the Jewish people. Uh, and properly speaking, uh, that is uh, the offspring of Jacob, right? Jacob is, uh, is the, the, I don't know how, how else to say this, he's the first of the Jews. Uh, his 12 children are going to be the 12 tribes, the Jewish people. Uh, and so he's, he's Israel, that's right, his, his name is Israel. Uh, he's got two names, right, Jacob, and later named Israel. And so he's the, the root of the people. Now, of course, Abraham is the one to whom the promises are made, but Abraham has other offspring. Uh, he's got Isaac and Ishmael, but Ishmael's not the child of promise. Isaac has Jacob and Esau, but Esau is not the child of promise. But when it comes to Jacob and his children, all of them are receiving the promise, right? They are the people of Israel, God's people in the Old Testament. I, I say all of that to make this point. Uh, although Abraham himself is not, properly speaking, Jewish, uh, he is the, the font of the people of God. He's, he's the place where God begins, so to speak, to, to expand on that people. They identify themselves as children of Abraham in the New Testament, sons of Abraham. Melchizedek is no relation. So Melchizedek's not a Jewish person. Melchizedek is probably Canaanite. He's, the, uh, he's a Jebusite, technically. Uh, the city, Salem, that he is king of is what later becomes Jerusalem. It's the same city. Uh, and so notice, too, that it says, uh, I, I should have pointed this out when we were back there, his name is Melchizedek, he is the king of Salem. The author of Hebrews is also going to pick up on those things. So let's take a look at Hebrews 7. Uh, he says, uh, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. So that's the, the warfare we just talked about. And he blessed him. And to, Ab and to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. So there's the exchange, blessing and tithing. He is first, translated by his name, the king of righteousness. Uh, and so you, you've heard me say this before. His name literally is the words king of righteousness pushed together. Right? Uh, anytime you see the, the sounds M, L, and K in a Hebrew word in the Old Testament, that's a reference to king, right? Interesting, Martin Luther King, MLK, uh, but Melech is king. And so uh, then you've got of righteousness. So righteousness is Zedek, or some variation of that. So Melki, MLK, Zedek, righteousness, king of righteousness. His name literally means king of righteousness. And he's introduced as the king of Salem. And Salem, Shalom right? Peace. He's the king of peace and the king of righteousness. And so he anticipates Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ. And then, of course, he does a little bit of midrash here. He's without father or mother or genealogy. We're not told where he comes from. And in this context of Genesis 14, we've had a lot of genealogies, haven't we? 
Yeah, Genesis 14 seems, or Genesis up to this point, seems overwhelmingly concerned with telling us who everybody is and where everybody came from and all the genealogies and the table of nations, which is coming up uh, next week or the week after in our sermon series. I haven't decided what to do with that yet. It's going to be an interesting passage to try and preach. But uh, somehow we come to Melchizedek in Genesis 14 and we're told nothing. Nothing about where he came from, father, mother, or genealogy. We're not told of his birth. We're not told of his death. He doesn't even depart from the narrative. He just isn't there anymore. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. He's a foreshadowing, Melchizedek is, of the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He goes on to argue that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, he makes a fascinating argument here. Uh, The descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. So if you're thinking about this from the perspective of a Jew, there is no greater priesthood than the Levitical priesthood. That's the priesthood by which in the Mosaic Covenant, You stand in right relationship with God. There can be no greater priesthood. The author of Hebrews says, well, there is a greater priesthood. It's the priesthood of Jesus Christ, which is modeled, anticipated, uh, or to use the language he used here in the text, resembles the priesthood of Jesus Christ. So he's making this argument. If the Levites received tithes, from the people. All right, that, that makes them the greater, the lesser greater. But they tithed to Melchizedek. Melchizedek must be greater than Levi. That's the argument he makes here. And he says that the Levites did tithe to Melchizedek in a sense because they were in Abraham still. Right, he's, he's arguing, again, from the lesser to the greater. Uh, You don't have to do a weird biological thing in your head with the fact that they were in the loins of Abraham. If Abraham gives birth to the Levites, then Abraham is greater than the Levites, right? And they are present, therefore, symbolically, in Abraham when Abraham himself tithes to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and, therefore, greater than the Levites. He is a priest. They were priests. His priesthood, then, is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Um, Okay, that takes us up through verse 10. Let me stop again. Yeah, Chase. Uh, so there's some objective uh, details that I can answer your question with, and then there's also the, I need to acknowledge that, you know, who knows what any given Jewish person in the first century would have thought of Melchizedek if you walked up to them, right? Um, that said, Melchizedek is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture, uh, in the Psalms, right? In Psalm 110, so let's turn back to the Psalms. And Psalm 110 we see Melchizedek mentioned. This is a a well-known psalm. Jesus quotes this psalm. Verse 1, 
This is a psalm of David. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. This is all kingly language at this point, right? Royal language. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. I love Psalm 110 uh, for a lot of different reasons. One of the reasons I love Psalm 110 is because David, who's of Judah, not Levi, not a priest, therefore no priestly privileges, but he takes privileges to himself. Right? He wears the ephod, which is a priestly garment. He eats the showbread, which only the priests are allowed to eat. How does David know he has priestly privileges? Because God has revealed to him here that he belongs to the order of Melchizedek. David is, is both speaking of himself in Psalm 110, but certainly more importantly, speaking of Christ. The Davidic king is a Melchizedekian priest. This is also consistent, isn't it? Because what city does he reign from? Jerusalem. He's not only inherited the rule of Jerusalem from Melchizedek, but the priesthood of Melchizedek by ruling Jerusalem. All of this, do you see how it all comes together? David is a priest, understands himself to have Melchizedekian priestly privileges. And he also understands that to be a greater priesthood than Levi. And so we have him here. And again, yes, himself, but more importantly, Christ. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And it's a priest king here in 110, isn't it? So I'll say this. The data was there for them. I don't know, I, I'm, you know, people give entire lifetimes to learning what Jews believed in the first century, right? Uh, that, that's Second Temple Judaism. It's an entire discipline unto itself in academia. And I have not studied in that discipline. So I'm not sure what they would have believed. But I believe we can say with confidence they had the information. And probably the author of Hebrews is not shocking his audience with this. Uh, again, it's an audience that, whether Jew or Gentile, has had enough experience in the Jewish faith that they're tempted to go back to it. So probably there was some tradition of Melchizedek in the Jewish faith in the first century. And certainly I would, I would think it would be informed by 110, Psalm 110 as well. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge debate in scholarship. Uh, is Melchizedek even actually a real human being? Or is he a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ? We have Old Testament pre-incarnate appearances of Christ. Uh, and so as a category, that's legitimate. Um, and the question is, uh, is that what Melchizedek is? Or is Melchizedek uh, an actual historical person? who only anticipates, points to, is a type of 
Christ. I personally lean towards a historical person for a few reasons. First of all, we don't, we don't ever, there's not a, another instance of a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament where he's given a proper name. Now, immediately the people who think it is Christ say Melchizedek's not a proper name. It's a title, right? King of righteousness, king of peace. That doesn't seem to be how the, the Old Testament narrative or the author of Hebrews handles it. Uh, he treats it as a proper name. Uh, he says he is first by translation of his name, right? King of righteousness. So I, I think that's a proper name. Even if it's a throne name, it's a proper name. That would be unparalleled in the Old Testament for a pre-incarnate Christ to have a, a proper name given to him. Uh, you, get, you have things like uh, here in Hebrews again in verse 3 that uh, he resembled the Son of God, uh, which if he was the Son of God would not be an appropriate way to describe it. So I lean towards Melchizedek's a, a, a real person. One of the arguments for him being a pre-incarnate Christ is this whole argument that the author of Hebrews is making that we're given no father, no mother, no birth, no death, no genealogy. So how can he be human? But I think the author of Hebrews is engaging in a sort of midrash where he, he it's, it's an interpretive uh, mechanism that was common in Judaism uh, that we don't uh, particularly embrace in evangelicalism. Um, and so I think he's engaged in, in a sort of midrash here I don't think the author of Hebrews actually believes that Melchizedek didn't have a father or mother, didn't, wasn't born, didn't die. He's talking about how he's presented to us in the text. He's, there's a, he's intentionally not given those things in the text in order to give the, the appearance of coming out of nowhere and going to nowhere. So that's my view. Billy. Yeah, that's how I take it. Craig? I, I was just going to say your question, Billy, that it is really hard because on one hand, in this first eight, it's such a strong statement, but Hosea is written or is written that he lives, and it's just this unqualified. But then we, as Matt mentioned, there's a couple of verses where it just would be really a weird way of talking about someone who was the same person. Mm -hmm. It feels a little like dodging to say, well, he's just talking according to the text, so that's probably the best explanation we have. <clears throat> and uh, it's fun to talk about. There are details here for us to wrestle with, but in the end, it doesn't affect really any significant interpretation, right? Uh, so there's not, there's not any significant uh, 
doctrine that rests on whether or not Melchizedek was a historical person or was a pre-incarnate Christ. No, I think if we go with the interpretation that he's a historical person, uh, it would seem odd that there would be a priest to God in Jerusalem and no people. Um, which again, and I, I don't think this is the thrust of the passage in Genesis or in Hebrews, but it does, it is consistent with the, the testimony of the Old Testament that God, though, though the Israelites are his people, uh, the ones that he's saving, they're not the only ones, right? Uh, and we do get glimpses of this. Not only those who come to faith through the testimony of the Israelites, uh, like Rahab, uh, but those who seem to know God uh, and yet are not Abraham or descended from Abraham. A lot of people may not realize this. Job and his three friends, four friends ultimately, Job and the friends are not Jewish. They're from the time of the patriarchs. They're contemporaries. And when we say contemporaries, we don't necessarily mean their lives overlapped. But from the period that's covered after the flood up through Abraham and his immediate offspring, that's the period of the patriarchs. And uh, the book of Job unfolds in that period. So Job is not Jewish either, and nor do his friends seem to be. And yet they know God, or at least Job does. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you get these little glimpses. I, you know, you can't be dogmatic about it, but I, I'm pretty sure that the wise men who visit Christ are probably a continuing school of Daniel because they, they are magi that come from the east. Well, how in the world did the magi in the east know that there was prophecy about a Messiah? Well, it turns out there was a magi in the east, right? some five centuries earlier and so uh so that's but again i can't be dogmatic about that but that's in fact they might even be jewish we we tend to think of the magi as being gentiles but they most of the jewish people did not return in ezra and nehemiah and in fact all the way up into the 20th century there were large jewish populations in old babylon uh, and so uh I, the, the wise men, they're, they're coming to worship their king, right? They don't just know there's a Messiah coming. He's their king. And so I think it's a good chance they're Jewish and, uh, and part of a continuing school of Daniel. Anyways, way off topic. Um, okay, we've only got a couple of minutes left. Let's, uh, anything else up through 710? I don't want to jump into 11 yet. We don't really have time to go anywhere with that this morning. Correct.
Yeah. That's right. And remember, how, how does this fit into the larger project of the author of Hebrews? Uh, if you're one of these to whom he's writing, what are you tempted to go back to? You're tempted to go back to the Levitical priesthood. Right? So he's showing you how even in the Old Testament context, the Levitical priesthood wasn't the best priesthood. There was a higher priesthood. And if that priesthood continues, shouldn't you rather submit to that priesthood? Let that priesthood be your representation? So, of course, he, he hasn't quite done it yet, but he's going to pretty quickly here move. He, he has done it, but not in the, in the unfolding of his argument. He's just asserted it, and now he's unfolding the argument. He's going to get to the point where he says Jesus Christ is that high priest. So there's a better priest than Levi, and he's, he still lives, and he's still the priest, the high priest. So what else? You've got about five minutes. David. So he, he does a thing here that's really, uh, Craig's already hinted at it. Uh, all illustrations break down eventually, right? Uh, and there's a point at which this is going to break down slightly because he's insisting on the continuing life of Melchizedek. But then he's going to say in verse 11, uh, now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek? He's suggesting there that the order of Melchizedek continues, but Melchizedek himself does not. Another in that order needs to arise. So I don't think it's, it's really, in terms of his argument, he's not arguing whether this one is greater than Melchizedek, He's put them on the same plane with respect to the priesthood to which they belong. Uh, but perhaps Christ is greater than Melchizedek in as much as uh, he, is, he will himself fill this role of priest, this office of priest, forever. Melchizedek sounds like he's forever. Jesus Christ is, in fact, forever. And now that he's come to the office of the Melchizedekian priesthood, it will be filled forever without fail. So in that sense, yes, greater. But his argument's not really going there in terms of comparing Christ to Mel or, or contrasting him to Melchizedek as greater, one greater than the other. Other questions? Okay. We're just a couple minutes early, but I'm going to go ahead and close this in prayer. 
Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ, who is our great high priest, a greater high priest than Aaron, a high priest who lives forever, who has once and for all sacrificed, shed his own blood so that atonement would be made for us and never need to be made again. And so we thank you for him. And we pray that, uh, that whatever else may try to draw us off, draw us away from this Savior, Father, that, uh, that we would recognize it for what it is and that we would put it to death, that we would prefer him above all others and all other things, that we would trust in him and him alone. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.